Psalm 36. I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Even on their beds they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast in the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. Thank you, Claire. Good morning again. Uh, Let's pray as we start. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, we pray that you would help us to turn our eyes to Jesus. Help us to look full into his wonderful face. And may the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. We all need to know that we are loved. Um, Husbands, we need to tell our wives. Wives, we need to tell husbands. Um, Parents, we need to tell our children. Children, we need to tell our parents. Friends, we need to tell one another. Pastors need to tell churches. Churches need to tell pastors. Do you tell the important people in your life that, that you love them? It's important. I was uh, reading something by a a pastor and preacher, Paul Mallard, um, earlier this week. And he was saying, it's not a luxury or an indulgence to know that we are loved. It's not a luxury or indulgence. Why? Because we have been made in the image of God. And God is love. The most fundamental and breathtaking thing about our God is that he exists eternally in a perfect relationship of of mutual love and boundless adoration. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. The Spirit is eternally bound up in this mutual, perfect relationship of adoration and devotion. Our God is an eternal fountain. Of perfect mutual love. Three persons united in love. And as human beings we are formed in his image. We are relational beings. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And one relationship in particular. As human beings we are created to to love God. 
and enjoy him and glorify him forever. That's the chief end of man, as the Westminster Confession puts it. That's our ultimate calling as human beings. That is what our discipleship is is all about. Knowing God and loving him. Knowing God is more important than serving him. Loving him is more fundamental than achieving anything for him in, in, in his name. So let me ask you this morning, how is your relationship with him? How, how is it really? Now I totally get that, that, uh, that we will express our love for God in different ways. Some of us will be much more extravagant and affectionate just by temperament. That's just the way we are. And we shouldn't feel guilty if, just by our personality, we're not as expressive as the next person. But let me ask again, how is your relationship with Christ this morning? Because I know from experience that it's entirely possible to have the outward appearance of someone who's a healthy, vibrant follower of Jesus, but inwardly have a heart that feels like a lead weight. And the reality is that the the struggle to avoid drifting away from an intimate relationship with God can be almost overwhelming at times. Sometimes it's just the sheer busyness of life. There's so much going on, so many demands on our time, and it, it just swamps us. Sometimes it's the sorrows of life, which can just sweep over us leaving us numb, leaving us adrift. Maybe we just actually don't know exactly how, but we're aware that our love for Christ is not what it once was. Well, we, we can press on out of a sense of duty, and duty is, is a good thing. It's a very good thing. Sometimes we need to do the right thing just because it is the right thing. But duty is not enough. It's not sustainable over the long term to keep you going. Jesus himself, in, uh, in the letters to the churches in Revelation, could not be satisfied with a church that was busy and sound and faithful, but that had forsaken its first love. And that's a real danger for churches like ours. But what can we do if, if our love for God is, is feeling cold? If we're finding that we just don't want to be alone with God. We don't have a hunger to pray or to read his word. When we're just not so amazed at his grace anymore. Where do we start? Well, we don't start with our love for him. We start with his love for us. We come back to this truth, to know that we are loved by an unchanging love that changes everything. That's a long introduction to this awesome psalm. But at its heart, this psalm shows us the, the Lord's staggeringly awesome love for us. His hesed, 
That's the, um, the, the Hebrew word that scholars and commentators can't quite find an adequate translation for. The Jesus Storybook Bible gets it, gets it really well. Uh, if you know the Jesus, book, Jesus Storybook Bible, then you, you'll know this phrase. God loves you with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. That's what we're going to see from this great psalm this morning. So whether you're feeling on fire for him this morning, praise the Lord if that's you. Brilliant. Maybe if you're, if you're perhaps feeling that sense of drift, or maybe even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this morning, but, but here you are. Well, it's great that you're here. Thank you for coming. I want all of us to see that God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. He loves you more than you would even dare hope. That's what I hope and pray we'll see this morning. So in this psalm, just up on the screen now, to set out the, the, the structure of it, there's three main sections to it. So the first four verses... We get um, David's description of the wicked. Sounds ominous, doesn't it? And then in verses 5 to 9, some of the most beautiful verses in the Psalms, in the Bible, describing the unchanging love of God. And then finally, the, 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 the final sec- um, section is David's prayer in the light of all that he's said so far. So starting off with, then, in verses um, 1 to 4, the description of the wicked. It's a pretty bleak start to a psalm. Um, David sets out here a description of the wicked. And actually, verse 1 is really difficult to translate and has baffled commentators and scholars over the centuries. And actually, what we have in these NIVs in, in front of us it isn't quite where the consensus has, has landed in terms of what this uh, is, 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 is meaning. Literally, instead of saying I have a message from God in my heart, literally, it's an oracle of rebellion to the wicked in the depth of their heart. So literally, it's, a, it's an oracle of rebellion to the wicked in the depths of their heart. So it's not a message from God. But it's a message from rebellion, uh, sin, transgression. What David is saying is that rebellion takes hold of, of, of the wicked's heart instead of the word of God. So instead of the word of God being the, the final authority, it's rebellion that, that takes hold in their heart. Now with the children and um, and young people, when we're trying to explain the concept of sin, you've probably heard us say this lots of times, but we use the mnemonic um, S-I-N, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rule. That's the, the heart of what sin is all about. So as David starts his description of the wicked, that's what's going on here there's rebellion shove off god i'm in charge no to your rule that's what characterizes what where their final authority is rebellion speaking to the depths of the heart of their wicked and there's a progression as you go through these verses so in the second half of verse one there's no fear of the lord 
in those who are listening to rebellion rather than the Lord. There's no sense of dread at judgment. The wicked person just thinks they're going to get away with their wickedness. Uh, They are free from any consequence or comeuppance. In their mind, they're invincible. They're immune to justice, to to punishment. And so, verse 3 and 4, as it progresses through, they fail to act wisely or do good. They plot evil on their beds. And they do not reject evil. They do not reject what is wrong. So do you see that progression? Rejecting God's authority, replacing his word with their own authority instead. There's no fear of the Lord. There's an imagined sense that they're invincible and immune. And there's just this abandonment, this letting go, giving themselves over to wickedness and sin. That's quite a bleak description, isn't it? And I guess as we look around our world and, and through history, you can see how, how, how that sort of thing works its way out on a macro level um, in, in the world around us. Governments plot, plotting schemes to attack churches. Dictators and powerful people thinking they're immune to justice and those kind of things. But how about on the micro level? In, in, our, in our own hearts. Do we see that progression in our own hearts too? In Romans 3, Paul writes this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have to get together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Some strong words from Paul in that chapter. All of us like sheep have gone astray, he says. What, what hope is there for us in our natural state of sin and rebellion against God? Well, we get it in the next section. The unchanging love of God, verses 5 to 9. <coughs> And these next few verses just could not be more different from those opening section, could they? What a contrast. But notice, he doesn't compare the wicked with the righteous. Those who are in a right relationship with God. He's not comparing the wicked people and the righteous people. That's not what's going on. He's comparing the object of the faith of the righteous with the wicked. He's showing us that the, the, the object of the faith of the righteous is, is our Lord. And what he's like, his character, his nature. It's as if he's, he's saying, turn your eyes upon Jesus, as that old hymn goes. So verse 5, your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. As I've mentioned already, the word that's translated love here in verse 5 is the Hebrew word hesed, which is a beautiful word. It's used more than 250 times in the Old Testament. Sometimes translated as, as love, sometimes kindness, uh, 
Um, Some translations have it as steadfast love. But it carries the idea of, of love and compassion and kindness and mercy all mixed together in, in one. But bolted alongside that, there's additional connotations of, of reliability, of loyalty and, and faithfulness. So it's not just love, but it's, it's loyal love. It's not just kindness, but dependable kindness. Isn't that beautiful? The never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And in this section, David first of all tries to, to set out the dimensions of the Lord's Hesed, his, his unchanging love. One writer puts it like this he, he has taken us out of the dark hole where the wicked is scheming into the limitless spaces of unchanging love. As we go through this psalm, that's, that's what's happening. His unchanging love is in the heavens. His faithfulness reaches to the skies. His righteousness to the highest mountains. His justice to the great deep. David wants to stretch our faith to try and grasp the infinite limitlessness of God's unchanging love and his goodness. There are no limits. You you can't get round it. You can't get over it. You can't get under it. And it it's so big. It is, it is limitless beyond all comprehension. So do you see what that means for us? Why that's good news for us? It means we, we can't out-sin his mercy and his love for us. There is no point where, where he'll say to us, that's it. That's the last straw. I'm going to turn my back on you now. He never has enough of us. He never reaches that point. Where we love in ways that can be self-serving at times or in ways that have strings attached, God's love is faithful and right and just. Wasn't it glorious? This picture, the limitlessness of God's unchanging love. So after trying to sketch out the infinite dimensions of God's unchanging love, David moves on to the infinite riches of his love in the next few verses. Verse 7, how priceless or how precious is your unfailing love, O Lord. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. How precious is your unfailing love. Is this the high point of the psalm? Could be. Is this the the kind of key verse of it? Why is it so precious? Because of the protection. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. It's a great picture, isn't it? Of um, humility, but of total protection. So there's protection in this love and there is provision in this love. Verse 8, they feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. It's lavish. It is generous. There's there's abundance. There's nothing tight or stingy about God's love. It's a feast. Abundance. And all this is true because, verse 9, 
For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. The Lord, our God, is the fountain of life. He is all sufficient. A fountain is, is such a wonderful picture. I don't know if you've ever been to like a massive waterfall or, or something like that before. I've been to Victoria Falls before and you kind of see the majesty of it and the power of it and the kind of seeming infinitelessness of it. That's what's going on here. The Lord is the fountain of life. Overflowing goodness and love. Infinite abundance. Never any lack with him. And he's the one that provides our life. And he's the one that provides our light. In his light we see light. Well these are extraordinary verses that give us an extraordinary picture of the Lord and his unchanging love David moves on verses 10 to 12 with with his prayer and and his prayer in these last verses is that his unchanging love his never stopping never giving up unbreaking always and forever love would not stop but would go on and on and on and on and in verse 11 the wicked rear their heads again But David is confident of the final victory for the righteous and defeat for the wicked that is coming in verse 12. He knows that victory is coming, but it's not yet. And whilst he waits ahead of that day of final victory, he's asking for God's unchanging love to be his ongoing experience in the thick of the ups and downs of of everyday life. That's a good prayer for us to pray, isn't it? To echo David here. God's unchanging love changes everything. And what's remarkable to me is is how much David sees here of, of God's love without having really seen or properly understood the ultimate example of God's hesed, unchanging love, the cross. Of Christ, How deep is God's love for us? Calvary. Paul in, in Philippians 2 says how the Lord Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But because of his great love for us, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the unchanging, unfathomable love of our Lord Jesus. He left heaven. He was betrayed. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was murdered. For the first time he entered the darkness of the Father's wrath for us. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how much he loves you. If we ever find ourselves doubting his his great love for us, we just need to look to the cross. And see all that the Lord Jesus endured and did 
for us. It was his hesed love that drove him to do that for us in our place. Taking the punishment we deserve for, for our rebellion so that we could know his protection and provision and forgiveness. And this is a love that surpasses knowledge, Paul says in Ephesians, as he, as he prays for those to, to, to know this love that can't be known. So this morning, this, this is a love that we, we can only get around the edges of. We're standing in the shallows of a vast ocean of love. And the truth is, we, we don't deserve that love. But it is ours unconditionally and unreservedly. It's an unchanging love that changes everything. So let's, this summer, today, maybe even for the first time, let's fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. That's why we're celebrating the Lord's Supper together in a moment. To remember his great Hesed love for us. Let's pray. Some words from uh, Romans 8 as we finish up. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.